Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Could it be you calling me down? That foolish heart turns out to be All that I Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have a special guest on the show. His name is Scott Pollard. Scott played 11 seasons in the NBA from 1997 to 2008. He also played college basketball at the University of Kansas, where he's currently sixth all-time in blocks and 10th in rebounds. With that said, Scott, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, when I was done at Kansas, I was second in blocks and I think top oh, okay. five in rebounds. Coach Self keeps recruiting all these kids that play a lot more than I did. So my, my records are being passed. Not that I set any records, but I was higher <laughs> up. In yeah. my day, we used to play off the bench and we liked it. You're one of actually the first person that I've, I've met or spoken to that spells Scott was just one T. Yeah. When I came out, my mama said a four-letter word. <laughs> but, you know, we have a lot to talk about today. Obviously, as I mentioned in the intro, you had a great career at the college level at Kansas and then at the professional level. Before we talk to that, we'll kind of talk about what your role is right now. You're currently in the real estate business in Indiana. You know, Can you kind of tell us really how long you've been in that business and what led you to that profession? Uh, I've been a realtor for four years now. Our company is West Clay Realty. It's myself and Joe Kempler, who is uh, this year going to be phasing out a little bit. He's going to be, he's been doing it for a long time and, and he's ready to retire for the second time. He was a uh, marketing professional for IBM for 30 years and then he got into realty. And so we, we have a lot in common in that we did something else for a living uh, first and then decided that this was a, a good career path towards the end. I'm hopefully not towards the end yet, but <laughs> um, my wife is also a realtor. So the, the two of us are a team. We're rebranding our marketing uh, uh, because we're going to be a, more of a team, uh, my wife and I, as opposed to Joe and, and myself. But uh, it's been a great career so far. I'm patting myself on the back a little bit, but my wife and I have both become multi-million dollar producers uh, in a market that the average sale price is in the 200s that's not chicken feed and that's not doing that bad when there's 8,000 agents in the area and we're in the top 100 or top 200 very consistently, uh, we're in, we're doing pretty well. So, uh, for just starting out, we've, we've started out pretty well and, and we're enjoying it. And, uh, our office is located in our same neighborhood that we live in. So we kind of, we broadcast that we live here, we work here and we love here and, and we play here and all that. It's, uh, it, it's a great community where we live, but we service the whole area. We've sold houses downtown. We've sold houses up north and west and east. Uh, but we do focus on our, our little area, the village of West Clay, where we live. But it's kind of like Prairie Village uh, or Olathe, both of them, suburbs of, of the bigger city. Uh, and so very similar uh, in, in that regard as far as demographics and such. But uh, Indianapolis has just become such a place that, that people are flocking to. 
uh, to get away from higher price, priced areas. Uh, Carmel, Indiana, where we live, was voted the best place in the country to retire this year. And a few years ago, it was voted two years in a row, best place to raise a family. Uh, it's, it's a great place and the houses kind of sell themselves, but we're here to help when anybody wants to move to the area or people just want to, to change where they live in within the area. Yeah, very interesting. You know, we've spoken with several college athletes and then, you know, they have their professional career. Actually, one of them was A.J. Abrams, who played at University of Texas in the mid 2000s. And he's a realtor in, in Texas. And, you know, he said that he's been in the business for I think as maybe as long as you have. And he, he just talked about when, once he finished his playing career and he, he was kind of all set and done, said and done. He said that moving and transitioning to Realton has been kind of a blessing and something that he's enjoyed doing. Um, would you say that's been the same for you? Absolutely. My only regret is that I didn't do it earlier. I retired in 2008 and uh, I should have gotten my real estate license while I was playing because um, I, I enjoy watching the market. I enjoy helping people out. Uh, <clears throat> I've always been a team guy. And uh, these transactions, when I'm meeting people uh, and trying to get people to agree on a price or agree on inspection items or whatever it is uh, along the process, I love uh, trying to help people you know, either sell their house for a price they can, they can live with uh, when the buyer's trying to knock them down or as the buyer side, uh, trying to help them get a price that's lower that they can live with. And that, then they can make the adjustments that they want to make to the house when they move into it. But uh, every transaction is different, uh, which appeals to me nine to five in an office every day doing the same thing would, would get very boring for me. So uh, yeah, it's, it's been a great transition. And as I said, I just, my only regret is that I didn't do this earlier. Uh, I really, really enjoy uh, this, this job. So, you know, transitioning more into your kind of growth as a, as a person and as a career on the basketball court, you, you were born in Utah, but you, you played high school basketball in California transitioned into in Washington state, you know, Sam and I are really interested about maybe, you know, what kind of sparked your interest at first in basketball, you know, talking about the culture of the sport over there, what it was at the high school level and how good were you as a high school athlete? I was born into a basketball family. I'm the youngest of six kids. Uh, everyone in my family is a giant and it's not because of some pituitary gland disorder or anything. It's just the product of tall people uh, procreating. And uh, so my dad's 6'9", my mom's 6'2", my oldest brother's 6'10", then 7'3", then uh, my sister is 6'2", then 7 foot, 7 foot, and I'm 6'11". So people are always like, why don't you just round up to 7 feet? Because my brothers used to beat the crap out of me when I rounded up. So I'm 6'11". But uh, I grew up in a basketball family. Everyone, my dad's in the state of Utah Hall of Fame. Uh, all of my brothers and sister got recruited and played Division One basketball. My sister decided not to play Division One basketball and volleyball because she didn't want any more surgeries on her foot to keep it healthy. So she retired before she accepted a scholarship to go pretty much wherever she wanted to. I'm the only one that made it pro, but dating back to my growing up days, I mean, there was just, I was always at a basketball game watching my brothers or my sister play. And uh, then when I moved to San Diego, when I was still young, obviously, um, you know, basketball wasn't a big sport out there. It's an outdoor city. So I was playing uh, beach volleyball. I was uh, surfing, bodyboarding, boogie boarding. Uh, I was more of an outdoor kid. I played soccer. I played every sport growing up, baseball, except for football. I didn't play football. Uh, but I played baseball, soccer, volleyball. And volleyball was my passion. I actually got recruited to play volleyball. I was, at the time, I believe I was the only player in the history of San Diego to be voted the San Diego 
player of the year in volleyball and the San Diego player of the year in basketball. And so uh, I got recruited to play both. Uh, obviously basketball was more uh, of a thing, uh, more people recruiting me. I was the 33rd ranked player in the country uh, coming out my senior year. Uh, but also I played a year in the state of Washington uh, and I was Gatorade player of the year up there. And so it got me recognition in two different states. So that, I think that helped my recruiting. Uh, everyone but Bobby Knight wanted me. Uh, and Bobby Knight uh, was in Indiana at the time. And he specifically told my family and I heard through the grapevine that he didn't recruit me because he knew my whole family was Mormon. Uh, and he didn't want that to be an issue because he doesn't hold back <laughs> as far as language. And so uh, I heard that's the only reason Bobby Knight didn't recruit me. And it was fine. I respect the hell out of Bobby Knight. I think he was a great coach, but I, I never would have played for him anyway. So uh, there was that. Um, I didn't want to go East. I thought uh, San Diego State or UCLA would be per perfect for me. Uh, I took a lot of unofficial trips to San Diego State because I lived right there. Um, Washington State tried really hard. Kelvin Sampson was there at the time, uh, but I knew that he wasn't going to be there very long because he was a great coach. He is a great coach, and I knew that he was better than Washington State, so he'd be gone. Uh, and I was right. He got he got the Oklahoma job while I was in college. Uh, and so I, I remember going up to Kelvin saying, hey, see, I told you, I'd be stuck at Washington State right now with some other coach, and, and you're here at Oklahoma because the transfer portal was very different back then. You know, grew up loving basketball, but not really a passion of mine until my dad died when I was 16. Uh, and that changed everything. I was screwing around. I was stealing stuff. I got in trouble uh, with the law a little bit, did some community service. Uh, I was a poor kid. I don't know why we lived in San Diego, one of the wealthiest cities in the world, especially Del Mar, California. Uh, but we lived there. Uh, and I was a poor kid. My dad was unemployed for a while. And, and uh, we were living off the government and church donations for a while. Then he passed away when I was 16. And that's when I, I quit basketball for two weeks, went damn near insane, and then uh, decided that that was going to be my calling. And from that point forward, there was really nothing that got in the way of me playing basketball. Uh, it became my passion. It became my anger, my frustration, my, my joy, my love. Uh, every emotion that I had uh, became <clears throat> basketball, you know, being eligible to play basketball. So I took care of my grades. I graduated with damn near a 4.0 uh, from high school, which admittedly was not that difficult. It made sure that my grades were right. And that's, that's how I got to the University of Kansas. I needed a father figure in my life. And man, Roy Williams was that man. He still is that man. Uh, I owe Roy Williams every bit of why I became a successful basketball player beyond what I was born with. So really tell us how that Roy Williams was able to recruit you at Kansas and, you know, how many visits did they make to your home? How many visits did they, did they make to your high school? And, and what was that final kind of piece to the puzzle that was, that made you think, okay, I got to commit to Roy Williams and play for Kansas. Well, as I said, I didn't want to go east. Uh, the furthest east I was considering was Arizona. Uh, Lute Olson made a great impression on me. I had been to his camp with the basketball team, that I was, my, my high school basketball team, and individual camp. So I was somewhat familiar with the Arizona. I had played in a Vegas tournament back then. It was called the John Farrell Invitational. So I had had some exposure there. Uh, but I didn't want to go anywhere east. I didn't really realize Kansas was in the middle of the country. I, geographically, I, you know, it was like, there was the beach, there was Utah where I was born, and then east of that, kind of all gray area for me uh, because I didn't really care about anything in the east, uh, and I considered Kansas east. It was a tough job for Roy. He came out, and, you know, my first letter, sorry, backtracking, my first uh, recruiting letter I got in seventh grade from Jim Beheim at Syracuse. And so I, I got recruited the whole country, but I just was telling him, I'm sorry, I, I don't know where you – I don't know where Connecticut is. I don't know where North Carolina is. There's just no chance I'm going to Florida or LSU or 
anywhere over there. So a lot of them, Georgetown, I just told them, hey, thank you. I, I really appreciate the interest, but there's just no chance I'm going that far east. And I was kind of saying the same thing to Roy early on because he wasn't coming to see me in San Diego. It was Jerry Green, his assistant, who ended up in Oregon and then somewhere else after that. But Jerry Green was, I guess, the first one who saw me. Then Roy showed up and my coach said, hey, Roy Williams is here. So I knew that that meant something because Roy didn't do a lot of the early recruiting. It was it was Jerry Green. Then it was uh, uh, another another assistant. His name's escaping me right now. And he was very instrumental in, in passing me on to Roy as well. Uh, ended up at a, another college. Gosh, I'm sorry. I can't remember his name right now. But very instrumental guy. Loved him. Loved him. I'll think of his name. <laughs> um, Roy started visiting. Uh, and then he came to my house the first time in Washington State. Uh, after my dad had passed away. And that's when he really made the impression on me that he cared more about me as a player, as a person, and, and as a young man, uh, and didn't make me any promises like some of the other coaches did. Some of them were offering money. Some of them were offering this or that through my family members, not to me directly. You know, now it's a little different with the NIL agreement, which is new. Uh, but back then, if there was, you were a high-rated uh, player, you know, they figured out a way to pay you behind the scenes. And and uh, so they were going at my family and some of them I knew about, some of them I didn't know about uh, until even my sister told me one after I retired from the NBA. She didn't tell me about one of the offers that was absolutely ridiculous. If I'd have known about it, I would have told her to take that and I'll go that I'll go to that school uh, because that could have changed our lives dramatically as a family. What was the offer? Uh, one college said, go, told my sister directly, the assistant coach called her and said, you can go shopping. The house budget you have is $2 million in La Jolla, California we'll pay for it and we'll get you a job in accounting. Now, $2 million in 1992, uh, that house in La Jolla would be worth probably $30 million right now. That's La Jolla, California, real estate is absolutely absurd. If, if we had gotten a $2 million house in La Jolla in 1992, that's a ridiculous number right now in 2021. So, you know, my sister never told me about that and I'm not gonna say which college it was, you know, she waited until I retired from the NBA. And then she told me that story. She said, I, there was no chance I was going to affect the way you, the place you went to college. Uh, and, and it would have, I would have gone to a different college. I would have had a much different experience and maybe never made the NBA. Uh, you never know what happened, happened the right way. And, and Roy, you know, some coaches were promising starting jobs. Oh, you're going to come here and start. Uh, you, you're going to be the, be the man and we're going to treat you well. And you're going to get this and that, and we'll take care of you. We'll figure out a car. Roy did none of that. Roy said, Greg Ostertag is going to start. I'm not going to promise you a starting job. Richard Scott's a senior, your freshman year. He's going to start. Greg Ostertag is going to start, and you're going to come off the bench. And if you earn a starting spot, you will start, but I'm not going to promise you one. You're going to earn it. And uh, so that appealed to me and because, uh, again, all my brothers played college ba basketball, and every single one of them committed to one coach. And during their time in college, that coach got fired or left. And then all of a sudden their playing time is nothing because the new coach doesn't care about you, didn't recruit you and wants to get their guys. So they all ended up transferring. Uh, and I didn't want that to happen. I wanted me to go to a college that the coach was going to be there all four years. And that even if I played every minute or if I played no minutes, I would respect the man that, that was making that decision and uh, know that it was because of me, not because of politics or because he didn't recruit me or whatever. Uh, and Roy fit all of that. Uh, on top of that, uh, Roy, was a father figure too. He was, he was stable. He was somebody that I could trust. And, and I needed that very desperately at that age. So, you know, you played first three years of high school in California, and then your final year as a senior year in Washington state, eventual college teammate, Paul Pierce, I believe grew up in California and played high school ball. Did you ever, I mean, you ended up playing on the same team 
at Candace, but did you ever cross paths with him playing high school? No, but um, that's how Jock Vaughn and I became roommates in college is we, we had played against each other in some regional tournaments. And then we got selected to some of the same all-star games because we we're the same age. So Jock and I actually uh, met in high school. Um, and I wouldn't say we were a package deal because that was never anything that we mentioned. Like, hey, if you go to Kansas, we'll tell coach we're going to Kansas together. But we both kind of talked to each other and said, hey, man, I'm thinking about Kansas. And if you go there, I, I want to play with you because we played well together in these all-star games. We liked each other. Uh, and we ended up being roommates all four years and the best men at each other's weddings. Uh, and so while I didn't know Paul Pierce in, in high school, because he was a few years younger than us. And I mean, even when he took his trip to Kansas, he was like 15 years old. <laughs> so in that, in, in that span of life, three years is a big deal. So we didn't cross paths on the basketball court until uh, he came to Kansas on his recruiting trip. Well, you eventually played uh, on the 2007, 2008, your final year in the NBA. You know, he was on the Celtics when they won the championship. Just to kind of dig a little bit more deeper in, in your time at Kansas, you were part of, in your final season, the 96-97 Jayhawk team, which is considered by many as one of the best teams in program history. Unfortunately, also one of the labeled as the best teams in college basketball that didn't win. Your team went 34-2, and two, spent most of the season as the number one team in the country. You know, take us back to, you know, playing that last year at Kansas and that season, you know, how special was it? Um, but, that, you know, maybe kind of how disappointing was it to kind of fall short to Arizona in the Sweet 16 that year? It, it was tough because uh, I, I wanted to go to UCLA and UCLA won it my sophomore year in 1995. And I wanted to go to Arizona and Arizona ended up beating us. I actually verbally committed to Arizona because Luke Olson had his, his uh, host take me to a party and I had a good time at that party. <laughs> so I wanted to go to Arizona. Plus it was closer to home, but ultimately, as I said, uh, Kansas was the right place for me. Uh, but yeah, number one, start to finish. I think a um, couple of us got on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Jock in the preseason, me in the postseason, And we were supposed to win it all. We were the best team in the country by far. We knew it. Uh, we knew we had the target on our back every single night. We got to 23-0 and 0 before we finally lost. You know, it, it was a tough pill to swallow. I, I had a broken foot, and I was trying to come back quick and, and be able to play in that game, and I, I wasn't there for Missouri. And, man, Paul Pierce and Rafe LaFrance, especially Rafe in that Missouri game, even though I didn't play in it, I got to say it was one of the greatest college basketball games ever played, double overtime. No, no, no one, the, the clear winner, really just ran out of time, and we happened to be winning when the clock ran out the final time. Uh, because it just went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, such a battle. And Rafe was just incredible in that game. But it hurt losing to, Can to Arizona in the Sweet 16. As I said, I, I was committed to go to Arizona. And, and some of those players were, were knowing that I had verbally committed. So uh, not the freshmen, not Bibby and, and Jason Terry and such. But, you know, some of the older guys on the team had known that I had wanted to go there and, and uh, wanted me to go there. So I think they were happy that I didn't. And uh, they were happy to beat me uh, and the rest of us. But especially because we were the number one seed. And, you know, I played with Mike Bibby later on in the NBA and Mike said, hey, we weren't that good. We didn't even win the Pac-10 or Pac-8, whatever it was at that point, you know, but they caught fire and, and they just, they were good. They could not miss. We could not stop them. Uh, and, you know, that's the old cliche. That's why they call it madness because it's not fair. One game and you're out. You have a bad game. You get in foul trouble like I did that game. Uh, I, I, don't, I only played two or three minutes in the second half. I got my fourth foul with 17 or 18 minutes to go in the game. I watched the rest of it from the bench because I, I got in foul trouble. It was my own fault. A painful, painful experience. Uh, the best team to never, never, ever do it. 
it, it sucks. Four out of our five uh, starting five were first round picks. Two of them were lottery, Rafe and Paul. Jock and I were first round picks. Jared Haas had a chance, uh, but played with a broken wrist most of his senior year just to help us keep that record alive and maybe get a, get a ring for Roy. Speaking of, that, that's the most painful part because we all felt like we were going to be the first ones to get Roy Williams a national championship. And we, we felt like we owed him that for, for all the things that he had done for us and, you know, for putting us together as a team and, and as men. When that game ended and we were not the victors, the pain I felt as a player of letting down who was my second father figure uh, was overwhelming. It, and it's never gone away. I, I've never not thought about that. Every time I see college basketball or watch the Jayhawks, I always think about that pain uh, that we didn't get Roy his first championship at Kansas. You know, you mentioned the 97 team just like, you know, was, was loaded. You know, you yourself was a first round pick, a couple lottery picks in LaFrance and Pierce, just focusing on like Pierce. Did you ever like realize that Paul Pierce was going to be the player that he was at the next level when you were at Kansas? Yeah, it's funny when he got there, I think he was 16 when he got to campus and he turned 17 shortly after that, but he was young. And we called him Bambi his freshman year because he was just all elbows and knees. Like when Bambi, I don't know if you guys are old enough to have ever seen that movie, but Bambi is on ice in the, in the classic cartoon and it's just slipping around because it's got hooves and not feet. Right. And that was Paul Pierce. He was all elbows and knees. Uh, he was still growing into his body. We called him Bambi because we could tell he was going to be good. I mean, there was flashes of brilliance his freshman year, of course. You know, I don't think I ever played with anybody that was stronger with the basketball. Paul didn't ever look strong. He was always a little doughy, uh, never looked like he was ripped. When that ball was in his hands, you weren't knocking it out. That was his whole career. His, his love for one-on-one -on -one after practice and being a gym rat, he, I mean, he'd play the manager. If anybody would stick around after practice and play him one-on-one, -on -one, he'd play whoever. It didn't matter who it was. One of the coaches would or one of the managers or one of his teammates, obviously. Uh, he just wanted to play one-on-one -on -one all the time. Everybody has their thing, uh, and Paul's thing was one-on-one. -on -one. Before and after practice, that's what he wanted to do because he would just always work on those little moves around the basket that made him uh, such a unique player that could post up, shoot threes, shoot short jumpers uh, because of that amount of time just working on it, working on it, working on it. And that was incredible to see from such a young age. And obviously, yeah, we knew he was going to be great because we could see that, the work ethic on top of the natural talent that he had. And we always said, when he grows into his body, that kid's going to be something. And he grew into his body. I'm a Celtics fan. So when I, uh, I enjoyed watching Pierce dominate for, for Boston for most of my childhood. So, you know, I always got to enjoy watch. I enjoyed watching him. But this is nothing to do with basketball. This is actually after your career was over. You appeared on the popular CBS show, The Sur uh, Survivor. I'm interested how really got a uh, – onto that show and how that experience was. Um, and for those who don't know what Survivor is, you know, tell us a little bit about what that show was about. Uh, well, Survivor started as a show about not getting food and being basically the, the premise was you're stranded on a desert island and you got to find your own food. And along the way, we're going to give you some physical challenges uh, and puzzles to eliminate people and then you have to vote off the people that you feel are not going to make it make you a better team at the beginning and then they they have tribes on the island and then once the tribes uh are narrowed down to a small enough number then they join it's called the merge and that's usually about midway through the season and then instead of voting off a weak teammate 
then you're voting off strong players that you don't want to have to compete against to win the million dollars prize at the end. I had never really watched the show. Uh, I was approached by my Hollywood agent back when I was promoting a TV show that I had written uh, for me that I thought was going to be a, a killer TV show. And I think it still would have been, but uh, that never came to pass. But I was out in LA quite a bit pushing that. And I had been in a couple small budget films as well. And so um, I was kind of trying to do a, a Hollywood thing while living mostly in Kansas and Indiana, <laughs> which is not uh, ideal when you're my size, you're, you're going to be a character actor at best. They don't want to fly you across the country to do five minutes of screen time in a movie where you're the villain. So uh, those big guy roles or those, those freaky roles tend to go to people that live in LA because you can drive across, shoot for a day and drive back home. Uh, Survivor called the first time in 2011. Uh, I was at the time getting divorced and it wasn't a good time for me personally. So uh, I passed. And that's when uh, I believe they did the first iteration that year with Cliff Robinson, former NBA player. Uh, and he was on the beauty brains brawn theme of Survivor. Uh, and then a few years later, they called me and it was a much better time for me personally to go film. And so I did. And that's how I got on the TV show Survivor. It was reality TV. Uh, don't believe everything you see on the internet or on television or on the movies. What's that kid's name? Pattinson, the new Batman. Not really, not really Bruce Wayne. You know, he's an actor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. I just got some yesterday and I get them frequently. Uh, you know, people that watch my season of Survivor and they're like, you're such a jerk. I can't believe it. You know, like we've gotten death threats. We've gotten, my wife was pregnant during the, when they showed it a year later because we filmed it in 2015, but it showed in 2016. And my wife got messages on the social media. I hope your unborn child dies because his father is such a terrible person. It's like, you know, it's a game show, right? Like we're trying to win a million dollars. We're not trying to make friends. So I played the game a little differently than some people would have, uh, but I don't care. It's a game show and, and uh, the edit is the edit. And I was a villain. I knew as soon as I showed up on the island, I saw another tattooed guy with a red beard and I was like, me and that pirate probably going to be the villains in this season. And sure enough, we were. Uh, so we called ourselves the caveman and the pirate and we had fun. We laughed our asses off. Uh, we did stuff that we would never do in real life. We we're the only ones married with young children that are on the whole cast and we provide for our families. That's what we do. And we did that for a certain amount of time on the show. And then all of a sudden we realized, you know what a better strategy is? Let's be jerks. So we were jerks <laughs> and, and uh, it worked out. We almost got in there. Uh, we almost, we had a plan that worked out. Uh, everybody had agreed to it, uh, but something got in the way, something mysterious, possibly behind the camera, uh, got in the way of, of our plan because it would have guaranteed Joe, Jason and I uh, would have been in the final three, probably with Ty, uh, and either Jason or myself would have won Survivor, and I don't think they wanted that. Uh, so some things happened, but no matter what, it, you know, it, it was fun. Uh, it was a blast. I had a blast. I would never, ever do it again. But it, it was fun being a part of reality TV. And, and it's, it's funny, like I said, I still get messages of people that think it's so real and, and think that I'm a jerk in real life uh, because I hid some pots and pans on a game show trying to win a million dollars. It's pretty funny. That's a really great story right there about your time to Survivor. Uh, it's kind of funny where we're meeting today, which is the day after Roy Williams made his return to Allen Fieldhouse since he's retired from uh, coaching. In 2003, when he left North Carolina, you kind of were outspoken about his departure. You talk about how he looked like a liar at the time because uh, many KU fans believed that he would never leave because he said that 
he wanted to stay at Kansas and then ended up going to his alma mater, North Carolina. Uh, what do you think uh, KU fans today in the year 2022 should remember Roy Williams' legacy at the University of Kansas? They should remember him as, as one of eight head coaches in the history of Kansas basketball, uh, which is the birthplace of basketball. That, that's an incredible uh, fact just in itself. Uh, eight head coaches in what, 123 or 124 years. It, that, that in itself is, is an incredible fact. But uh, when you're, we're, we're one of four that are alive right now, uh, and they're all great human beings. I love all four of those guys that are alive right now that, are, that have coached at Kansas, that are our coaching at Kansas, and Roy's one of them. Uh, so I, I know that he got a standing ovation last night. If I'd have known he was going and I had a little more time to plan, I would have been there just to see Roy, but mostly to see the people standing and applauding the man that, that uh, again, I owe most of my basketball career to, uh, and so many other men that he's molded over his years of coaching. Uh, I know it was an emotional time for him, but man, I, I love Roy Williams and I love that Kansas fans stood up and, and cheered him on uh, because they absolutely deserve to, to see him come back and, and be, a, be recognized, but also uh, he deserves to, to know that Kansas fans have uh, forgiven him obviously and, and love him and respect what he had done for our program. Uh, and yeah, I was mad, uh, but I, I, I heard I started a trend. Uh, when I committed to Kansas, I made him promise me that he wasn't going to leave for North Carolina during my four years, because as I said earlier, my brothers had had the situations they had had, and I didn't want to have it be where I go to Kansas and all of a sudden Roy leaves for North Carolina and I'm getting coached by some guy that didn't recruit me. Mm -hmm. So I made him promise me and, and he did. He promised me that he wasn't going to leave during my four years. And I said, well, then I'm coming to Kansas. And I heard that players heard about that and players subsequently started making Roy promise him that he was going to be there during their tenure. And the last players he promised were Nick Collison and um, gosh, my mind this morning is off. So I heard that he would, those two were the last two players that he promised he was going to be there during their whole uh, career. And that turned out to be the case because Wayne Simeon ended up uh, going there and, and playing a year for Bill. So, you know, I don't know for sure that that's a fact, but I heard that that was kind of a thing after I prom made him promise that players after me started making him promise that he was going to be there. And that continued on into the early 2000s. But Roy did what was best for Roy. I, gave, I forgave him eventually. I know I was really mad at him and I called him a liar and I called him some things, but we talked and, you know, it, he just went home. You can't get mad at somebody for going home. Uh, and, I, you know, I always wanted him to be the Dean Smith of Kansas. Uh, and he was at that point. Uh, but Bill has come in and, and been great for Kansas. And I'll never forget Danny Manning's words. He said, you know, Kansas was great before Roy Williams and Kansas is still going to be great after Roy Williams. And he was right. And Roy is in there. Roy is in the top what, two coaches in the history of Kansas basketball, maybe. I mean, if you consider championships uh, the, the thing, then, uh, then he's not in the top two. But there's only eight, so he's in the top eight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was actually there last night to uh, hear uh, Roy Williams, and I actually saw him walk past me when he was getting interviewed on uh, TV, so that was a very unique. Seeing him, they do a tribute video to him last night, and it's just great seeing uh, KU uh, – uh, celebrate him and everything he's done, not just for the game of basketball, but for the university. And I think I think a lot of KU fans uh, got over his departure in uh, 2008 when KU beat North Carolina in the uh, Final Four and then in the national championship game when Roy Williams wore the KU sticker supporting the Jayhawks when they won the national championship game against Memphis. That absolutely helped. 
for me as well as for everybody else. I was I had already forgiven him because we had already talked about that, but for sure, it, it, it helped. Winning solves a lot of problems. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you, you played 11 years in the NBA. Your longest uh, tenure in the NBA was with the uh, Sacramento Kings. Can you tell me what it was like playing in Sacramento where you had Chris Weber, Doug Christie, Mike Bibby, I think Pesha Stoyakovich was on that team, coached by Rick Adelman. That was pretty much like the last great Kings team that we've seen in the NBA. And uh, you played in the uh, Western Conference Finals in 2002, which is known as a very controversial uh, NBA Finals due to officiating that you guys got really got screwed on on the other side. That that team was originally put together was just a circus. I mean, we had white chocolate, Jason Williams uh, at the helm, uh, Tony Delk from Kentucky, and, and Corliss Williamson from Arkansas, and Chris Weber coming out there, didn't want to be there, Vladi Divac from overseas, and Peja Stajakovic from overseas, the Serbian nightmares. And so that, that was the beginning. And then as it moved, I mean, John Barry, one of my best friends, uh, was on that team early on. But as we mutated into the 2002 finals, Western Conference finals team, yeah, with Mike Bibby a little bit more consistent at the point guard spot, hits big shots, Peja, uh, Hito Turkoglu, the Turkish Michael Jordan, uh, as we called him. We had a play, four down TMJ, and that was for Turkish Michael Jordan. That was Hito's play. We had a blast. We had an absolute blast beating everybody. And I will say that wasn't the last good Kings team. That was the only good Kings team. We're the only ones that gotten out of the first round. We're the only ones that made the playoffs and, and won in the first round. And then we got to the Western Conference Finals. And, man, those Sacramento fans deserve so much better than they're getting right now. They've been an absolute – excuse my language. They've been an absolute shit show since this new owner has been involved. And it is never going to change as long as he keeps being the owner. The way he's doing things is destroying the franchise and the city along with it. It's not a big enough city to have a terrible Sacramento Kings team and then do other stuff. Sacramento Kings are the only show in that set in that city. It's the capital of California, but there's nothing else there. It's, it's the, it's nothing in the middle of everything. You can go snow skiing in a couple hours. You can go to the beach in a couple hours and you can get South or you can get North. You can get to wine country all within a couple hours. You can do almost anything. You can go hiking in Yosemite in a couple hours. It's a great location. It's a great city. Uh, but without the Kings being good, the owner is hurting the city of Sacramento by a lot. It, it's, it's really disgusting. Um, but we had a blast. We, we, uh, uh, we got to the Western Conference Finals. As you said, you know, game six was questionable. You know, in L.A., <clears throat> game four, questionable. Game five, we dominated. Game six, questionable. We were the best team in the league, and we earned home court throughout the playoffs because we had the best record in the league. We were the best team in the league. And we had game seven. So no matter what you want to say about anything that, that may have happened, a half-court shot that counted that shouldn't have counted, or the referees giving Shaquille O'Neal 15 free throws or, or 24 free throws as a team in the fourth quarter or whatever it is. You know, you can talk all you want about the conspiracy, but the bottom line is we had game seven at home in front of the best fans in the NBA at that time, and we crapped the bed. We didn't make shots. Uh, we didn't make free throws. We went to overtime, and we should have won that game at home in front of our fans and gone to the NBA Finals. But what we did was we underplayed, and Kobe went Kobe. And you can't let Kobe go Kobe uh, at game seven at your house. And so um, that's, that's my response to all the conspiracy theories. That they may be true. I don't know. I don't know if the NBA wanted, to, wanted us to lose. Uh, but the fact is we had game seven at home and we should have controlled business there and recovered from whatever we had going on in our mind. And there was a lot going on in our minds 
uh, because it, game six was, it, it wrecked us. It, we, we knew we were the better team and we just, Vlade fouls out, Scott fouls out, Chris Weber fouls out. We got Lawrence Funderburg, no offense to Lawrence, but he can't guard Shaquille O'Neal. Nobody can guard Shaquille O'Neal in that, in that era. And we've got a 6'9", 210-pound guy guarding Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, Shaq's going to do okay again that, with, that, with that matchup. You know, that, that was tough to, to swallow. It's tough to get over. But, again, we should have. We were professionals. That's what we're supposed to do is put the last game behind you and, and focus on, hey, we got game seven at home. Let's show our fans who the best team is. And we didn't. We crapped the bed. We should have mm-hmm. beaten that team by 20 at home because of what happened earlier in the series, because we were the better team because we knew we had beaten them in the regular season and proved that we were a better team. But unfortunately, the champions did what champions do, did what killers do. Kobe and Shaq destroyed us, and they did what they do. And, and you know, we have nobody else to blame but ourselves for letting them be close and letting them make it a, a close game so that a big shot by a superstar wins a game for them, and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Adam. I mean, playing against Bill Jackson, Kobe, Shaq, that's those never an easy matchup. Yeah, I love I love how you brought up game seven and that you just guys didn't get the job done. You guys had a chance, just didn't quite happen. And uh, I hope the Kings figure it out, but it just it seems like they always just take 10 step backwards when they make one step forward. And it's people in Sacramento definitely deserve better considering that's their only professional sports franchise in that city. And they they've they are very passionate about the game of basketball. Another team you ended up playing for, the Indiana Pacers, which is currently where you're at right now. And you live in the state of Indiana. So you're back in the, a city that you, you did play professional basketball for. 2004, 2005, Donnie Walsh adds a Steven Jackson to the squad. Seems like the team has all the pieces together to win a uh, NBA championship and get Reggie Miller his ring that he has uh, dessert that he deserved but uh unfortunately one night November 19 2004 Ron Artest fouls Ben Wallace hard Ben Wallace shoves shoves at Ron Artest and uh, chaos starts to happen and then a fan throws a beer at Ron Artest and Ron Artest runs to the st- into the stands and get, punches a fan and just like one of probably the ugliest scene in uh, American uh, professional sports history happened that night and uh you were there on the Pacers bench. Uh, would you say that was the scariest moment of your uh, professional uh, career and not just being a professional career, but just like your life in general? Scariest? No, I, w- I wasn't scared at all because I'm a giant and I'm really strong. I can kill people with my bare hands if I get angry. Uh, <laughs> and I've always known that. So I wasn't scared of fans coming out of the stands and going to fight me. I just stayed away from them because mm-hmm. if any of them swings at me, yeah, it's going to be bad news for them. And you saw the footage. If, if Jermaine O'Neal doesn't slip on beer, that fan might be dead because he's a seven foot, six, 265 pound man swinging full on and he slipped. And luckily for that fan, he slipped because otherwise, yeah, he might be brain damaged or dead. There's a reason there's weight classes in boxing, wrestling, and all that because uh, physics matter. But um, I had been in some ball, brawls earlier in my career and been fined for one of them that I didn't even participate in. And so I wasn't about to hand my bag over to the NBA uh, or charity or whoever uh, because I want to fight some kid that I can beat the hell out of. I'm not going to pay money to beat somebody's ass. So I stayed away. I stayed back. I watched. I made sure my teammates were okay. And then when they finally called the game, I pushed my teammates out the goddamn tunnel to get us out of there. And you can see footage of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an awful night. 
It should never have happened. And nobody ever talks about it was a game that was a blowout. And nobody realizes the only reason the starters were in the game was because the coaches kept the starters in the game. Now, it's a blowout. Why is, why is Rick Carlisle, our coach, keeping our starters in the game in a blowout game? Here's why. Because Rick Carlisle used to be the coach of the Detroit Pistons, and he didn't like that he got fired after putting them in a position to win an NBA championship, which ended up happening with a different coach. So he was still mad about that. The previous season in 2004 in the spring, we were in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pistons. We were supposed to win that one. We had the best record in the East, and we had home court advantage, and we were supposed to win that one, and then Detroit went on to win the, national, uh, the NBA championship. So we were all upset about that. We show up this fall. It's our first game against the Pistons at their place. And Rick Carlisle wants to make a statement. He says before the game, we're going to make a statement. We're going to beat the hell out of these guys because we're a better team. And we did. We were beating the hell out of them. It was, it was out of hand. And Rick kept the starters in because he wanted to keep sending that message. Now, in retrospect, it's a lot easier to look back and say, damn, if Rick Carlisle takes the starters out of the game, the brawl never happens. And that's a fact. You cannot argue that. If Ron Artest is not in the game, Ben Wallace isn't in the game. And none of that happens. And that's the thing that, that really makes me mad because there's a minute left in that game and we were better. We proved it. We could have pulled the starters out, finished out the game. And then the next time we go to Detroit, which was an actual scary moment because a bomb threat was called in. That was a scary moment in my NBA career because we're in the locker room and all of a sudden they go, let's go, everybody on the bus. And we run to the bus because somebody called a bomb threat in and said there was a bomb in our locker room. Now it ended up being false. But a lot of players were like, man, let's get back in there and play. I was like, no, <laughs> are you nuts? And I said, first of all, we shouldn't be on the bus out in the parking lot. They pulled us out of the building into the parking lot. I said, that's the worst thing we could do. We should be out of our locker room and on the bus in the garage. No, nope. they pulled us out in the parking lot. Well, that's where they can get to you. You know, if you think about a bomb threat, uh, realistically, and I have a brother who's former Secret Service, and that's where I learned this, uh, my brother-in-law, he said, they call in the bomb threat because they can't get the bomb in the building. So you get on the bus and you go out and you're in a park, you're parked in the parking lot. Well, they can pull a car up that has a bomb in it and detonate the bomb and they get you. And so I'm sitting on the bus shitting my pants going, Hey guys, we shouldn't be out here. We should be back in the building where they're at least screening people and they can control maybe whether there's a bomb in there or not. We know we can't control if there's a bomb in a car that's pulling up to the bus right now where we're sitting in the parking lot. So uh, that was a scary moment in my career. That was the next time we played Detroit after the brawl. And of course, it turned out to be nothing. I'm a firm believer in everyone that was a participant in that brawl should have been handled the way it was handled. Uh, nobody got off lightly and nobody should have gotten off lightly. But it just pisses me off that, that uh, my teammates didn't have the foresight that I had had because I had been in fights earlier in my career. And all that happens is you lose money. And mm -hmm. for what? You're going to get an NBA fight where nobody wins. Nobody actually lands a punch against another NBA player because nobody actually wants to fight. Hold me back. Hold me back. That's all that happened. And then the fans come in. I'm not scared of these little people. They're normal-sized humans. Not, I'm not insulting anybody, but I'm just saying, I know how big and strong I am. I'm not scared of a 5'9 guy coming on the court, weighs 170 pounds. I'm double his size. I know I'm going to win that fight. Unless he's got a gun, it's not going to go well for him. So I just stayed away because I know that. I know that every day of my life. I don't go to clubs for the same reason because the drunk guy is the guy that I don't want to have to beat him up and then get sued by him later. So I don't go to clubs for the same reason. I didn't during my career uh, because I always wanted to avoid that situation. I'm not going to let some punk take my money.
I felt the same way uh, that night. And I just wish that my teammates had felt that same way and had that perspective because they made their Netflix special. And then I see the, the comments afterwards where they're saying, yeah, man, now if I, I wish I had, you know, not reacted the way I reacted. I'm sitting there going, you're getting paid millions of dollars to play basketball, not to fight people. You should have had that perspective while you were getting paid millions of dollars to win games because we would have won a national championship, an NBA championship, and, and we wouldn't be talking about this right now if you'd had some self-control back then. And that's the thing that pisses me off is them acting like, oh, man, I wish I had done – I wish you had had that perspective when you were a multimillionaire uh, being paid to win basketball games, not as a, a, a broke-ass filmmaker uh, talking about, oh, I could have, would have, should have. Recognize where you are and the gifts you have in front of you while you have those gifts in front of you. Uh, retrospect is for suckers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did watch that uh, Netflix series, and it, it was pretty. It was definitely a pretty interesting series. I think a lot of people really enjoyed hearing that story. Uh, you definitely today. It feels like today's culture, they're more player favorite, and they try to defend the players as much as possible, even though there are circumstances where the player deserves should be held uh, accountable to a really high high standard for some for a lot of situations and. It felt like that situation, it was definitely the players definitely got what they deserved with their, their punishment. And, uh, and a lot of things had to change, not just the NBA, but in sports events. And, uh, and there's, there's just a lot of, we could dive deep into, but we don't have enough time to do that today. But it was definitely a very ugly situation, whether you're a player or a fan or a, a, a worker at the Palace of Auburn Hills that day. For sure. And I do want to say one more thing. It could be argued the Pacers have never recovered as a franchise from that. Kings haven't recovered from the, the era back in the early 2000s when they were good. It could be argued the Pacers have still not recovered from that brawl. And, and that's another thing that really pisses me off is that, you know, the two players that really wanted to fight that night, they, they're, they're, they're not being held accountable. And they tried to make themselves out to be victims uh, in that Malice in the Palace video uh, on Netflix. And so that's the that part I'm sitting there going, you weren't the victims, you were the instigators. Uh, mm -hmm. You didn't have to run up into the crowd. You didn't have to fight Ben Wallace, and it wasn't even a real fight against Ben Wallace. It was a foul. Take the foul, shoot your free throws, and end the fucking game. Excuse my yeah. language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So after the uh, Pacers, you went you went northeast to Ohio to play for the Cleveland Cavaliers for one season, and that one season you got to experience playing with LeBron James and uh, got to be part of the uh, first trophy the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers franchise has held up made it to the uh, NBA finals that year. And fortunately you guys got swept, swept by the, uh, the eventual dynasty of the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, talk about your uh, one year playing in Cleveland. And uh, what are some things that you saw with playing with LeBron James that uh, not many people would know about? Well, it's, it's been a long time and LeBron I'm sure is a much different person now and a bit, and obviously is a different player now. He, he did pay attention to his body a lot. He's, he's always been the guy that's making sure that he's, you know, whether it's pregame massage or hot, cold, uh, you know, managing his health uh, was always a priority. Even back then when he was only his fourth year in the league and he was only 22, I believe, when we were teammates. And, you know, he was a kid then, you know, I was 32 years old. He was 23, I think, or something like that. Uh, big age gap. You know, I was at the end of my career. He's still in the beginning. He's not even in his prime yet. They kind of brought in guys like me and Danielle Marshall to, to help Zadrunas Ogalskis and, and David Wesley. They brought him in, you know, to try to be veterans, to give him some guidance and to try to, you know, get some veteran presence on that team. 
because uh, Anderson Verajal could certainly have used some guidance and uh, was the starting four. And, and Zadrunas needed to back up to, to lighten his load because he had that bad foot. Uh, so he didn't have to play so much every night. But um, I think they put together a great roster. Uh, you know, you see in the, on the interwebs, these, you know, they're like, oh, never forget LeBron dragged this team to the NBA finals and trashed the rest of us. It's like, all right, ask LeBron. Did he win that? Did he get to the NBA finals by himself or is it a team effort? I mean, everybody that knows the game knows that basketball is a team game and you don't get one player and get to the NBA finals. You don't. LeBron's great, uh, but he's not getting to the NBA finals by himself. We had a great team. We had guys that hit shots when they needed to. Uh, we had great playmakers. Uh, besides LeBron, we had guys that knocked down shots when he demanded a double, triple team and throw it in the corner to Damon Jones uh, or Danielle Marshall or whoever it was, Booby Gibson. Uh, had a great rookie year that year. Um, you know, we had a good team uh, and we had a great record. I think we were uh, first in the East or second in the East in our record. I, I believe actually we're first. Uh, and then we get to the NBA Finals. So anybody that wants to knock a, a roster that makes it to the NBA Finals, well, they just don't know anything about basketball. They don't know anything about team sports. Uh, we were a great team. Uh, and the only thing that happened is we did run into the buzzsaw that was the, the machine <laughs> of, of the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, they didn't do anything flashy. They just beat your ass and they grinded us down uh, and spit us out. We didn't make any adjustments. Uh, I'm, I'm not bitter about it because I'm not the coach, uh, but I thought our coach should have made some adjustments during that, that stretch. I mean, you're getting, you're getting swept. Why not switch up the lineup a little bit? And uh, we had talked about me playing and starting uh, some of the games leading up to that because I'd had some success dating back to college against Tim Dun Duncan. Uh, I frustrated Tim. Tim didn't like playing against me. Uh, knowing that, and, and Mike Brown, the coach at the time, had been a coach with, here with the Pacers, and he had known, we'd known each other since high, I was in high school. He's, he was at USD when I was in high school. So we'd known each other and played against each other in pickup games and not really realized it. You know, Mike was talking about having me in the starting lineup and, and playing against Tim, or at least playing heavy minutes against him, and that never happened. Uh, I played 12 seconds in the NBA Finals, and, and so my experience there was not good at the end because I was hoping to help my team win an NBA championship and I wasn't given the chance to even get on the floor and really play any meaningful minutes to try to help that. And we didn't make any adjustments and we got our asses swept out of the building. Yeah, that, definitely. It was definitely uh, tough for me at the time as a Cavs fan to watch, watch the Cavs get swept. And uh, one of the crazy things about LeBron's four championships is one KU player has been on each one of those uh, championship teams. So basically, if LeBron would have won it that year, you would have been one of the Jayhawks, one of the yeah. few Jayhawks that would have got helped get LeBron his ring. Well, and Drew Gooden was on that team too. So it would have been two of us. I completely forgot about that too. And another question I have for you, uh, kind of a fun one, is one of the things I remember about you, about your playing day, was your, you had different haircuts. Throughout your career, you definitely express like different hairstyles and stuff. Tell me, what was your favorite hairstyle you had as a player, and what was the one that you hairstyle that you probably regret doing in retrospect? I guess the one that I wore the most was the ponytails. Uh, back in Sacramento, they called me Samurai Scott. Uh, that was fun. I think that was the most, uh, the longest use because I used that here in Indiana as well. I love the mohawk I had in Cleveland, whether it was the black one or the blonde one. Um, I've got a, a one action shot of me playing against Miami. Shaq was on that team, and I'm driving to the basket. I keep that picture in my basement because I just I love that look. But I, I wish I had been able to have an afro 
Uh, I don't have curly hair, uh, but that's the one I never did that I wish I could have because I wanted to rock an afro at some point, but I just didn't have enough hair to do that. Didn't have cool enough hair to do that. But, you know, now I don't really have much of a choice, as you can tell. Uh, most of my hair has fallen out. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I grow where, I, where it's still growing and keep my face warm. Uh, but I wear a lot of hats now because my head gets cold here in Indiana in the wintertime. I, uh, you know, there was no uh, reasoning behind all the hairstyles other than I knew it was going to grow back. And now it doesn't grow back. Even when I was a kid, I, I shaved a mohawk in my head when I was in seventh grade. I dyed my hair in seventh or eighth grade. Uh, and then I dyed it in college as well. So, you know, it wasn't anything that was like, oh, now I'm on the NBA. Some people think that. They're like, oh, you're just like Dennis Rodman. You get to the NBA and you start doing all this stuff. Like, I always did it when I was younger. I painted my nails in college. Always something that I just thought, you know what, let's see what this looks like. And uh, then if I didn't like it, I would move on to something else. Yeah, absolutely. I, I And also kind of expressed your uh, creativity and kind of that, like, I guess, would you say like that California, like laid back style as well that you kind of like express kind of like where you're from as well with the hairstyles? Yeah, I mean, the the blonde tips, that was like, I was a lead singer of one of those 90s bands, right? Um, I'm not going to name any names, but you know what I'm talking about. And, you know, that, that was absolutely a product of where I was from. All the girls dyed their hair blonde in San Diego where I grew up, you know. Uh, and I was like, well, why don't the boys do it too? So I did. Very much a part of my culture out there was, was being in the surf and the sand and playing beach volleyball. And uh, my hair would get lighter anyway just from being in the sun so much. Uh, and then I finally decided, let's see what it looks like all the way blonde. And as I got older, my hair got darker because I wasn't in the sun as much. So then I had to dye it blonde if I wanted it to be blonde. Before I, we let you go, I got one question I like to ask uh, every um, basketball player that's on there. Whether a kid's trying to get on their varsity team, try to get a college scholarship or even make it to the NBA. Um, what's like one word of wisdom or like a sentence of wisdom that you would give to a kid who's trying to reach their hoop goals or and ambitions? I don't think Roy Williams made it up, but he said it a lot. The harder I work, the luckier I get. And I worked my ass off and, and I got lucky. I wasn't the most talented one in my family. I'm not the biggest one in my family. Everybody's like, oh, well, it helps being seven feet tall. Yeah, it does. But I know a lot of seven footers that are digging ditches. I know a lot of seven footers that didn't make it in the NBA, didn't even make college basketball because they didn't want a coach telling them what to do. They didn't want to work hard. They didn't want to do, do stay after. They didn't want to lift. They didn't want to run. They didn't want to be in shape. The harder I worked, the luckier I got. And it's still true in, the, in, in post basketball. My life is the same way. Uh, I work hard as a realtor and I'm getting very lucky at it. Where can uh, people find you on social media? And where can, uh, how can uh, our viewers and, and we can uh, support you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Scott Pollard31. That's with one T, S C O T P O L L A R D 31. On Instagram, I'm Scott P31. First name, last initial, and then 31. Uh, Facebook, it's my real name. Um, I have to accept you on Facebook. But the other ones, you can just follow me. I don't, I don't restrict followers on the other two. Uh, I, feel, I feel like social media should be social media. I, I don't lock my accounts. Uh, but on Facebook, I try to limit the number of people on there because there's so much hatred on Facebook. Uh, I have to screen out the psycho survivor fans. So you have to request me to on, on Facebook. But um, we have a, a West Clay Realty Instagram page. Uh, our office is here in, in, uh, in Carmel, Indiana, in the village of West Clay, right in the middle of the village of West Clay. So we're, we're pretty easy to spot. Uh, you can come in. I'm, I'm in the office right now. You can come in and say hi. 
uh, West Clay Realty, and we're affiliated with EXP Realty, which is a worldwide internet-based uh, realty company. And we're having a blast and helping people buy and sell homes. We call it slanging homes. We're just dealing them left and right. Uh, we have a January special, two for one. That's kid. I'm joking. That's not true. My wife and I are always doing stuff in, in the community, charity-wise. We help out women's shelters. We help out abuse uh, shelters. Uh, we're, I'm hosting the My, My Boar Ball, which is our realty association here in Indianapolis. Uh, on the 22nd of this month, it's sold out. Uh, we've already capped above our, our, our goal of making $250,000 to help fight homelessness in the area. Uh, so this is gonna be one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, ball ever, as far as money's uh, raised for charity. Uh, I'm hosting the Carmel Gala in uh, uh, April, which helps, uh, this one touches home for me because again, I, I told you, I grew up in a very wealthy area, but I was poor and we didn't have nothing. <laughs> and I don't know how we lived in Del Mar, California, but we did. Well, Carmel, where we live, is a pretty affluent area for Indiana. And there's kids that have needs. There's kids that are that don't have uh, socks and shoes and stuff. So this Carmel Gala that I'm hosting in April uh, actually helps kids that are underprivileged in the area. You can find that anywhere. You know, there's there's kids in Prairie Village. There's kids in, in Leewood that don't have things. And you're like, well, why do they live here? How do they live here? And they don't have these things. Well, you know, stuff happens. People get divorced. Uh, parents get incarcerated or, or whatever it is, uh, it happens everywhere. And so uh, that's what the Carmel Gala is, is doing. But yeah, we, we're, we're in the community quite a bit. Uh, we host a concert in our, our neighborhood every year uh, that's outdoor. We usually have about between four and 600 people here, uh, live music and music, uh, food and drinks. And uh, just to, to promote community, to, to promote, we have all kinds of different uh, stratosphere of, of clients and, and neighbors in this, in this neighborhood. We have rentals. Uh, in, the, in the lower, you know, thousands for rentals, which is pretty cheap here, and all the way up to multi-million dollar homes. So we have a quite a diverse neighborhood here with, with over 1,600 units. Uh, people from all over the world get transferred here to, to be part of Eli Lilly or one of the other many corporations. There's over 50 corporations that have worldwide headquarters here in Indianapolis. So uh, for, for it being mostly white, which it is, I'm not going to lie, it's, it is a very diverse area uh, for Indiana because of, of the influences from all the corporations that have their headquarters here from around the world. So it is a, it's a fun place to live. It's a fun place to raise kids. And, and uh, of course, uh, as I've always said, when, you, when you've been given so much as I have throughout my hard work and, and been given so much as a result of that hard work, uh, it's, it's your, your duty to give back to people that are less fortunate than yourself. And I know that sounds uh, cliche when you, you hear an NBA player or, or an athlete talk about that, but uh, we live that. We absolutely live that. A portion of every one of our transactions goes to homelessness, goes to the MyBoard Foundation to help fight homelessness. So uh, we, we put our money where our mouths are, and we're absolutely about giving back to our community, uh, and hopefully our community keeps giving to us. Well, Scott, we really appreciate the time today, and we appreciate you sharing your stories about growing up as a child in different parts of the United States, really developing the skills to play basketball and then your, your time at the college and NBA level, some really cool stories that you provided and shared with us. We appreciate that. Got it guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, we'll uh, do it again sometime. Calling me down, 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 down. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.